I think it, it's a double-edged sword because I think after that, I felt very empty a bit. I wasn't quite sure what, if anything, would ever reach that high again. Hello and welcome. My name is Mark Pierre Sondergaard. I'm a texture artist in visual effects. Welcome to my podcast. Let's be honest, a life and a career as a working artist can be very fulfilling, but it's not for the faint of heart. It's filled with challenges and obstacles, and the path forward is not always clear or simple. On this podcast, we discuss all of this openly and honestly with experienced artists who have already walked that road. That's why I call it the Naked Texture Artist. There are many podcasts that focus on and celebrate all the big achievements in visual effects and animation. But my career as a texture artist has not been one unending victory lap. So personally, I'm more interested in learning how my fellow artists handle the hard things, when things don't work, when things break, or when we're expected to produce the impossible. All of that stuff that takes place behind the curtain. So I invite you to join me on this journey. Hopefully together we can learn from the artist who went before us, save ourselves some scars and some tears, and increase our joy as working artists. Welcome to the Naked Texture Artist. Man, what a treat I have for you today. Yes, we still have many more episodes to come as my conversations with Miriam Katrin and Manuel Huertas go deeper and deeper. And I haven't even started on Stephen Thornhill yet, but I just had to jump the gun here. You know, I love texture art and the texture artists that produce these wonders. And one of the modern masters who has been on my radar for a long time is Chris Nichols. I was so excited when I listened to CG Garage a good few years ago, where he was interviewed by his namesake, also called Chris Nichols who also worked at Digital Domain. Imagine the confusion. Anyway, not only did I learn who painted the magnificent textures of Thanos in Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame from that episode, but Chris also generously shared a lot of his experiences about how Thanos was brought to life. We always used to say that the spec map was the MVP of texture maps, but that episode changed how I saw textures. For the first time, I started taking displacement maps very seriously. Now knowing who Chris was, I went and did his texture course over on CGMA, just simply to see what texture wisdom I could suck out of him. And there again, he didn't disappoint. So when I decided to start this podcast, he was naturally among the very first names I scribbled down on my wish list. So you can imagine Mark in dreamland as we spent over three hours together the other day talking textures, living and working as artists and Chris' insatiable and infectious love for art, cinema and creature work. It's basically all I can do to not just dump it all on you in one go, but that wouldn't be fair to all the goodness Chris was sharing as so many of those gems would be lost in a longer listening session. Notice how just because you painted one of the modern masterpieces of texturing, Thanos, doesn't mean that your life will be free and easy from that point on. I mean, once you climb Mount Everest, where do you go from there? Where can you possibly go from there?
Also, please notice how generously and humbly Chris shares the praise. Is that not the sign of someone who has mastered his craft? He's also not too big to openly acknowledge the insecurities and doubts we all suffer from as artists. Yeah, Chris knows what he's talking about. These episodes are just solid gold. A little note before we begin. If it is a little unclear, this episode starts with me asking about his collection of Frank Frazetta art. Enjoy. Bringing uh, Frank Frazetta with you. <laughs> I got Frank Frazettas all over the place in here. I, I, I got one down there. Oh yeah, yeah. I got like a, um, it's a weird one. It's kind of like you put a black light. Uh-huh. And it, everything glows. It's like super psychedelic. You can see wow. the there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but we're we're just like redoing our floor at the moment. So my um my office is like just turned into a store. It was just full of crap. Um, well, it, it doesn't look like that. It looks like a, a a very busy and eclectic man that has many interesting hobbies, kind of thing, you know. But, well, that's a that's a very kind way to look at it, not just a complete mess, but the situation was was that um my partner and i shared this office for the last three years and we just we have we have a three-bedroom house but the second bedroom was being used as a spare bedroom and we were like what are we doing why do we have a spare bedroom when we're cramped into this office and soon as summer hits we're just like sweating all summer yeah just trying to keep it cool with two bodies and two computers in the room it's just madness so we were just like gutted the uh spare bedroom got rid of the bed and now that's my partner's office so we're like oh my god i can't believe we didn't think of this sooner so you're from australia is your partner from canada or she's from here she's like from vancouver because she's like i'm from denmark my wife is from spain and and we live in montreal canada so the spare bedroom is a neat thing when whenever you have friends and family that's coming from another continent you know yeah so well, I, was... I might just get a futon or something like that just just to have something but yeah yeah i mean it's just it, it just didn't make sense anymore because we'd we'd had somebody maybe used it twice a year you know and yeah. just like it's not 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 even worth it no I, I mean it sounds really fancy when i'm saying that it's very rarely used but it's there for you know that potential family member that may or may not turn up so yeah absolutely i was just listening to re-listening to uh, the the podcast you did with cg garage a couple of years a good couple of years ago now and uh and, I'm, and you were saying that you started out as a kid sort of drawing frank facetta drawings basically right yeah that that led you into sort of creature work um to the point where you're basically like top of the game texturing Thanos and and what have you and when I was taking your workshop CGMA workshop uh, a couple of years ago now it sounded like you needed a new challenge and you were sort of moving more over in the direction of concept art which kind of makes me think is that just the meaning of life to eventually you start drawing Frank Frazetta you take a detour and you just want to go back to drawing Frank Frazetta it all comes back to Frank Frazetta right yeah pretty much Um it's it's funny i i think he like he captured something in the zeitgeist of his time yeah and essentially i don't think there's ever been another fantasy artist that's moved the dial as much as him 
N- not, just sort not, of, not, not had that outsized impact, you know. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you would say Frank Bazzetta is a household name. He kind of is, especially in art circles. Like, oh, yeah. yeah I think yeah. everybody in the art community knows who he is and probably respects him. And I, Even I, th- though I think you would probably also take images of him and show to non-artist people and they would recognize him. They wouldn't know the name, of course, but they would have seen these. Sure. So these are iconic images. Yeah. I, and that's the thing. His his art endures, right? Like, I, I can just look at his books all the time and get the same amount of inspiration from his work. But for me, that he's like the Michelangelo of our time. Like, and the stories about how fast he would work, like he would wait he'd be a procrastinator and wait till the, the night before the deadline and then just wait spend all night working on a painting and that would be it he just wow. would, wouldn't even be dry by the time he was handing it over to the publisher and, and he was working in oil though which is you know like i was yeah. thinking that's a dangerous approach because you do need some drying time for certain techniques so like you can't just paint wet and wet all over yeah well i think that was the thing he had a style that was so fast and fluid that he he didn't have the luxury of waiting for layers to dry he would just paint wet on wet and i, th- I think that just comes with the in, in this intense amount of confidence and experience that he's able to do it and it looks as good as it does but he would work back into paintings what was really strange he would get the paintings back from the publisher and then redo them like if you look at certain paintings they look well, similar even at the, at the point where he's already been paid for the work He's been paid for the work, it's been photographed, it's already being put on the cover of a Conan book or something like that. And then he would take it back and be like, oh, I don't like the pose. And then he'd just sort of wipe out Conan and repaint him from a totally different perspective. Wow. So so you mean <laughs> that there, there, there's got to be like a whole series of 2.0 paintings out there of his like yes. redone paintings. He truly was the George Lucas of his time. I mean, I think we all have that, you know, like whatever you're doing, whether you're doing a painting or an asset or something, you're looking at it afterwards and you just hate it. You're just like, ah, all the errors are just screaming oh. at you, you know? Yeah. I I mean, I would do, I, I would never finish anything. It was up to me. Sometimes I just have to park it and say, well, that was me at a certain time and that's okay. And I can just take what I learned and put it into the next project. Um, that happens frequently, but there is stuff I'm tempted just to reopen and finish and redo. And I, I've done that. I picked up projects that I hadn't touched for 10 years and uh, went back to them and, and gave them a polish. Yeah. So you you did the textures for Thanos five, six years ago, something like that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we started on that project in 2017. Um, so how long ago? How long ago is that? Is that? Yeah, that's got to be like that's got to be six seven, years, or something. Seventeen. Six years, yeah. yeah. It was around the same time I met my partner, so um, yeah, six years coming up in July. Um, but basically, uh, yeah, th- that was interesting because we had a very long lead up before we even landed the project officially. We had we had this sort of working dev time, which it isn't uncommon, especially for big projects where you're trying to land a big chunk of the show. Uh, quite often, like you'll get some money from a studio to do a test. Hmm. Um, but this was, I think this test was special because um, I think we badly wanted it. Like, and and uh, most of us just put everything we had into making this as good as possible. Like failure wasn't an option for us. We badly wanted the Thanos work. Um, and so 
I mean, it was just like the stars aligned. I, I feel like I work with the best people um, that have ever come through our studio. Uh, at that time, I had Chris Bostjanic on the model, incredible modeler that works at Blizzard now, very good friend of mine. Uh, Ron Miller was the facial lead. He came from Weta like the year before and overhauled the entire facial system at Digital Domain. And um, and then, yeah, we just had killer animators, uh, everybody, riggers, everybody bought yeah. their A-game. And there was a momentum. That's what I have to emphasize. It was a uh, just like an energy at the studio where everybody was just dying to kind of get to work on it and, and make it as good as possible. And it was all under the leadership of Darren Hendler, who was like our big supervisor at DD, who was actually bringing the work in from Disney, from Marvel. Um, but he was, he's one of those incredible people that generates his own energy field. And anybody that's lucky enough to be under that supervision. Hey, hey wait, you're making yourself sound like Ringo Starr in the Beatles here, you know? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was Ringo Starr. Just star, lucky absolutely. to be there. And <laughs> I was lucky to be there. Yeah, no, I, I, that is that is what you see on screen. There isn't any one person that can be like, no, no, of course not. Of course not. I mean, like, yeah. Notice here how Chris speaks of the team he has around him. I didn't ask him about all those people. I wanted to talk to him. This is his moment. You know, that kind of attitude where you realize that it is not just about you. That there are so many people around you that also deserve praise. That your achievements stand on the shoulders of the team around you. Gratitude is just a fantastic emotion to cultivate. It insulates you against all other negative emotions, including greed and envy. Whether high or low in a studio, among experienced artists or beginners, that stuff is sadly not found as often as you'd like. I'm sure by now we've all seen Jurassic Punk. I have to say coming across that attitude and that humility is not to be taken for granted in our industry. But then again, I'm not interviewing those people. I'm interviewing Chris because he did something special, because he is someone special. And I certainly see a connection between what he has accomplished and who he is as a person. That generosity of spirit as Chris seeks to send the elevator back down to help the next generation as he has reached the top, it's just gold. It says a lot about the character of a person, that lachesse, that despite the insecurities and doubts that he also struggles with, as all of us do as artists, that he is still a big enough man to think about his fellow man. Uh, I'm a text artist, and so I, I appreciate that the surfacing work on Thanos, but I cannot, immediately you need to follow that admiration with animation so on so as like so many other disciplines that are coming sure. together and just really breaking out of what people thought was possible at that point so but how do you feel about it now is this uh you know like you have these bands that sort of like uh, the eagles right they're famous for that one song uh hotel california mm -hmm. and apparently i don't know how many of them are alive still you know cocaine and the 80s but <laughs> i i understand that they hate playing hotel california it's sort of like 
it's the pretty girl that's like, you know, I got brains too, you know, uh, try me. I, I, I can talk about other things than Thanos. Is that is that yeah. where you are at this point? Or are you still like, no, that was really cool to be a part of? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was a highlight of my career, I would say. And uh, I think it, it's a double-edged sword because I think after that, I felt very sort of like empty a bit. I wasn't quite sure what, if anything, would ever reach that high again. You know, you sort yeah. of chase those dopamine rushes. And for me, that whole show and the, the subsequent one even, not as much. Like Endgame was still had a, had a lot of its own challenges. But I felt... I felt like I needed a change after I finished up on that. And luckily, the opportunity arise, arose to um, to become a concept artist at DD and take over from a couple of other concept artists that had left. So that sort of presented itself, and it was something I was already putting out. Well, that, that makes sense, I think. You're sort of like, you climb, climb Mount Everest. What do you do after that point? You just do it again? That's not really the same, you know, as that first well, first man on the top Mount Everest. Yeah, you know what my my philosophy is is get there and then get out of the way. And I had artists under me that I wanted to let them have the next opportunities as well. Okay. So like one of one of my favorite artists was is Breno Guinard, who you may have heard of. He's a Brazilian artist, but he was one of my texture painters on well, on both the Avengers movies, but also on Power Rangers. And I'd mentored him at Think Tank, okay. which is one of our schools in Vancouver. And he really, like, was pushing the limits. And I, I thought he was a fantastic natural creature guy, like creature texture painter. And so when I sort of um, dropped out of texturing, he sort of took the reins for some of those more hero assets that came after Thanos. So assets like um, Morbius and She-Hulk. He did all the the, 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 you know, the hero texture work on those. Really? I really liked She-Hulk. I thought, I thought I, I'm, I've, I've been debating this endlessly with my, my friends and some of them are DD and um, obviously it was a TV show, so budgets are not quite the same as a feature film. And I thought she had life and presence and sparkle on the screen. Just, just yeah. me. I think it's a much, much harder challenge to make something like She-Hulk um, work, you don't, you can't lean into the grotesque factor that someone like Thanos has. True. Where you know when you're working on a creature that's more beautiful and has to have a certain energy to her, a lot harder to sell that as a digital character, I think. So I think that they, yeah, considering all the, um, not the limitations, but the constraints that they had with the TV budget, I think everybody. You know, worked really hard to bring that character to life for better or worse. So you're you're about 18 years into your career. Is that right? Give or take? Yeah, give or take. I mean, I really don't consider my career really starting until I started working at Digital Domain. Right. Before that, I worked at a, a few studios and it was really just like learning things. And I was doing a bit of everything too. I wasn't primarily a texture painter. I was a bit more of a generalist to begin with but my first job at digital domain was in 2010 and by that point i'd probably been working for seven years off and on never for long periods of time it's a very different industry though back then i'm not sure when you started well so my first job was uh, with digital domain in uh, 2012 they were starting a London studio. It wasn't very yeah. successful. We ended up, I think the last show we did for DD was uh, Ender's Game. 
And uh, so I did G.I. Joe, Retaliation, the second one, and then Ender's Game with under the DD umbrella. And then it sort of collapsed, the, the partnership fell apart, and, and we became... Bankruptcy. Well, I don't know what it was. I mean, like, that was above my pay grade, but we just did those two... And all of a sudden, we weren't DD any longer. We were now Reliance Media Works, which is an Indian yeah. company. Yep. And we continued doing other shows with under that name. But I remember seeing your queen there. You know, I was I was doing some of the as a junior texture artist. I was doing some buildings and props and whatever for the alien planet, and also helped a little bit with the battle school, that huge space station that floats in in space. You know, and yeah, and things like that. What else did we do? We did the ferry that ferries uh, Ender up to the battle station, uh, battle mm. battle school, and and one of the big sort of warships, like a really long cylindrical thing. The, I remember one of the drones. Yeah, Eye of Carrier. Was it the Eye of Carrier? Could be. I mean, this is many years ago. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, that show was notorious for just having gigantic assets. Oh, yeah, like, were. I, I worked on one of those carrier ships, and I probably spent six months on the textures. And it was, I mean, I would never do it this way now, but it was like literally drawing paint panel lines. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> to... Yeah, there wasn't really, I mean, how would you have done it procedurally or simpler nowadays? But I, Oh, we had Substance Designer back then. Oh, yeah. It would have made uh, yeah, the process yeah, absolutely. so much easier. But I mean, I, I just felt like nobody at the studio had worked on a show like that. And so we really didn't know how to tackle it. It was like one of those first shows where we had like 100 UDIMs per asset and our machines could barely take it. I, I remember that. It literally, the whole concept of loading things into memory, it, it was just impossible. You had, Everything had to be split into so much smaller parts. And yeah. how, how we managed to do that with the technology back then, I don't know. Well, there, there were scripts that we had written that would basically take multiple modules and then bring them together into one complete piece in the uh, in the scene. And I mean, but I, I just felt like what took so long was the stuff we were up against was just so dense. It was so, such heavy geometry. And so there was just multiple tech problems, I would say, just with memory running out, the renderers would crash frequently just because there was so much data that we were trying to get through the pipe. And we were also in a hybrid rendering pipeline back then. It was like a V-Ray RenderMan pipeline. And so that had its own issues as well. It was very strange back in those days at DD. There was always like several rendering pipelines running and, um, you know, just depended on what the the supervisor was comfortable with, but really? eventually okay. it homogenized, and then it really just became V-Ray, and that sort of simplified things. I'd say. Yeah, we we only worked with V-Ray on our end there, but I think that probably was the supervisor that we were sort of under that made yeah. that call. I would imagine. But I'm thinking, so 18, 18 years in, what does that feel like? Chris Nichols will be back in a future episode. Thanks for spending a little bit of your day with us. We have a tiny bit of housekeeping to do on the way out. If this episode has been helpful to you, why not share the podcast with your colleagues and friends? If you'd like to support the podcast, I'd appreciate if you bought me a coffee. 
You can do that on coffee. That is spelled ko-fi.com forward slash the naked texture artist. One word. If you have suggestions, comments, or questions, I'd love to hear them. Feel free to drop me a line on thenakedtextureartist at gmail.com. That is the naked texture artist written out in all one word at gmail.com. As I mentioned, having a busy day job in visual effects means my release schedule for this podcast can be a bit irregular. So if you don't want to miss out, subscribe to The Naked Texture Artist wherever you get your podcasts. Or follow the podcast on the socials, then you'll be alerted when the next episode drops. The music in this episode was Awake by Tycho. Nick Sifoni helped put the sound together. And everything else was done by me, your host, Mark Pierre Sondergaard. Speak too soon.